Good Sunday morning, and welcome to Forgiven, the weekly radio broadcast of Northeast Baptist Church of Danbury. We're happy that you tuned in today, and we hope you will find the program beneficial to you. Now, here's our pastor, Joe Vassin. The message of the gospel has an amazing history of changing lives and changing nations. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Jesus Christ will change the life of any person who will turn from his old ways and believe on Jesus. And when a large number of people truly turn to him at the same time in the same region, that region will see a remarkable transformation. There are countless examples throughout history of such transformations of societies. One of my favorite examples is the history of the state of Hawaii, was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the efforts of a man named Henry Obukaya. He was a native of Hawaii who was saved and educated right here in Connecticut nearly 200 years ago. You ought to read the history of the Christianization of Hawaii sometime. It's just fascinating. What we fail to realize living in America is that while many of us have grown callous to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, around the world, in remote places, in primitive tribes and villages and in countries that had shut the gospel of Jesus out for centuries, today the message of the gospel is catching on like wildfire. Now, I'm not an expert on world missions, but this morning we're going to hear from a man who is an expert on world missions, a man who has started churches himself in many different countries. And in 1986, he started a ministry called Final Frontiers, It's a ministry that starts new churches around the world at a rate, are you ready for this? At a rate of one new church every three hours. In the last 25 years, Final Frontiers has been responsible for starting over 37,000 new churches around the world. The man's name is John Nelms. I want you to listen to him for a few minutes a day as he gives you some of the most fascinating information you'll ever hear, demonstrating that every nationality, Every people group, every language and dialect of people in the world has a connection to and a desire for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Don't miss what he has to say. Here's John Nelms. God has already given mankind a glimpse of himself. God has given the world. There's nobody who's ever lived that did not have an instinctive knowledge of God. They didn't know his name. They may not know where he lives. They don't know much about him. But something in here tells them that they know that there's a God. These people who go around and say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe that there is a God. Oh, quit lying to yourself. You do believe there's a God. I've never heard of a believer on his deathbed denying the fact that he believes in God. Have you ever read a story like that? But the books are legion of people who were known atheists who on their deathbed cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness. Because they know there's a God. It's just in their own arrogance. They try to say that they're not because they think it makes them sound sophisticated and intellectual. When I first met the Thai, the, uh, the Aka people, and they began to tell me what they, uh, the, the things that they knew about God, I was perplexed because they said that all men came from one village. 
and worship the creator. But in time, they stopped worshiping him and began to displease him. So he came down from the skies and he divided them into different groups. And he gave to each group their own separate language. And they said, that's where the tribes come from. And then they said he gave to each tribe a book about himself in their own language. I thought maybe they had that book. This would be the greatest find in archaeological history. But they didn't have it because they said, like other tribes, that they had lost it. The Akka said that they had eaten it because as they saw other tribes losing their books and losing the knowledge of God, they thought to themselves, if we'll eat the book, we'll have it in our stomachs and we'll have God there. We'll never be separated from him. So they said our forefathers ate the book, but when they did that, they lost the knowledge of God. And one of them said, that's why we call ourselves Akka. And, and really, they don't call themselves Akka. That's the Thai word for their tribe. They call themselves Ikor. And I said, what does Ikor mean? He says, it means stupid. I said, you call yourself stupid? Yes, we call ourselves stupid. Talk about a tribe with a poor self-image, you know. <laughs> so why do you call yourself stupid? And they said, because we've lost the knowledge of the creator. And I looked at them and I said, in my country, if a man loses the knowledge of the creator, we call him Professor. The Korean, the, the, the Kui tribe in Burma, when they get married, they build a hut for the husband and wife to live on, a one-room hut, bamboo on stilts. And then they build another room off to the side of it. And in that room, they have nothing. They don't use it. They put a candle in there that the wife lights every night before they go to bed. Now, I don't know how much wisdom is involved in lighting a candle in a bamboo hut with a grass roof, but they do that every night before they go to bed. And you ask them why. Why do you do that? They don't know God. They don't know the name of God. They don't have a written language. But this is what they'll tell you. Someday they'll say, the creator is coming back again. How they know he came the first time? They don't have a Bible. Someday he's coming back again. And when he comes, he may walk our trails. And if he passes by at night, we don't want him to miss us. We want him to see that we have a room prepared for him. So that's the wife's job every night before she goes to bed to light the candle And make sure the room for the creator stays clean. They have a glimpse of God. Oh, we have something that describes that glimpse of God too. It's found in the book of Revelations. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. God has given every society and I believe every culture on the planet knowledge about himself. At the Tower of Babel, we can trace 70 different tribal groups or 70 different languages that were birthed that day. From the Tower of Babel to the time Jesus came, they had multiplied to 60,000 distinct languages on the planet. But from the time of Christ to today, that number has shrunk from 60,000 down to 24,000 because of extinction of of cultures, because of of conquest, uh, just any number of things. Languages that have merged together or tribes that have merged together and unified one language. So we went from seven or 70 to 60,000 down to 24,000. Now we're told that out of the 24,000 language groups, at least 8,000 of them have never had the gospel presented in their own language. At least eight, some say up to 12. The Bible tells us that someday we'll stand before Christ and that there will be people from every nation, every language, every tribe, and every tongue singing worthy is the lamb. It'll be the great choir in heaven. That means sometime between now and then, somebody's going to get the gospel to those other language groups. God has always given glimpses of himself. You take one of the greatest religions on the face of the earth today, Buddhism, which really isn't a religion, it's a philosophy. 
Buddha was never worshipped as a god while he was alive. That happened after he died. Buddha was a man named Gautama that went off in search of truth because he was dissatisfied by Hinduism, which he had grown up in. So he left his father's throne, literally. He walked away from his position as the crown prince. He left his wife. He left his children. He gave up all of his earthly wealth, and he went out to seek for truth. People began to call him the Buddha, which means the enlightened one, not the light, but just someone who was becoming enlightened in his journeys and his travels and so forth. Many people begin to put their faith and confidence in him that he could show them the way. When he, when he was sick and on his deathbed, his closest disciples came to him and said, What are we going to do? When you die, we've lost everything. You're our savior. What are we going to do? And Gautama told him, I am not the savior of the world. The savior will come after me. And his disciples said, Well, how will we know him? And he said, You will know him by the wounds in his hands and his feet. You think somebody had given him a glimpse of God? And what was, that was 200 years before Isaiah. Isaiah saw a similar vision of the crucified Christ on the cross. Does that mean Buddha's in heaven? Don't know. Wouldn't be a bit surprised to find them there, though. I'd be more surprised to find some Baptist preachers I've known there. <laughs> Did Buddha accept Christ? I don't know, but I know this. I don't know if he came to the light, but I know he was coming to the light. And I don't know of any time that he rejected and turned away. And I I pray God he did not. What was it that he didn't like about Hinduism? The, the, The ritualism and the lies that had crept in. In the Hindu faith, which is the oldest practicing faith on the earth today. It's over 5,000 years old. They have five holy books. We have one. If you're a Mormon, you're lucky. You get to have two. But we only have one, the word of God. The, the Hindus have five books called the Vedas. The oldest of the Vedas is called the Rig Veda. It's 5,000 years old. The Rig Veda, in what would be classified as chapter 17 of their book, talks about the supreme God who created the world and the universe and everything in it. He was called uh, Brahma. Well, I thought Brahma was a cow. Well, what did Romans chapter 1 say? They knew God. They glorified him not as God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped the creature instead of the creator. And for this reason, God gave them up. So they used to worship a supreme God named Brahma. But when they got tired of worshiping an unseen God, they wanted, like the Hebrews at Sinai, to say, make us a God that we can worship. So they took the cow, the, what we call the Brahman bull, and they, they gave him the name of their supreme God. He wasn't called Brahma before that. He just had some other name. They literally took the name of the glorious, invisible one and ascribed it to this cud-chewing cow and then began to worship him. And even to this day, you go to India, you can see literally holy cows where they put paint on them and garlands around them and a holy man will be walking down the street and you come up and you touch him and you give an offering, you say a prayer to the bull and he just stands there chewing, listening to you pray and then he walks on Leaves a little deposit there for you on the road, lets you know how much he thinks of you, and he goes along his merry way. Literal holy cows. That's where the expression came from. They say in the, in the Rig Veda that Brahma, the creator, made man with his own hands out of the dust of the earth. They said that he made the earth and it was without form and void. They say that man, that he made mankind, but that mankind became sinful and wicked and turned their back on Brahma. 
But he so yearned for a relationship with man that he began a sacrificial system for them. But the sacrifice of the bulls was not enough. And so he sent his only son named Prajapati to the earth to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. They say in the Rig Veda that when he would come, that man would kill him by nailing him to a cross. That he would have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. And that after he's died, he would be put into the ground, but that three days later, by the power of Brahma, he would raise from the grave again. I'm not talking the Gospels here. I'm talking about the Hindu religious books. You say, but Jesus isn't named Prajapati. No, he's not. He's not named Jesus either. Jesus is our American way of saying his name. The Thai call him Prapajal. The Japanese call him Kasima. Every culture has their own word. The Chinese call them Sheng Ti. The, thai, the, the tribal thai, uh, groups in Southeast Asia call them Sheng Di. Everywhere you go, they have their own language name for him, but he's the same God. Does everything they wrote in the Rig Vedas parallel exactly with Jesus? No, because they'd already begun denying the truth and changing it. But there's enough that, sim- that is similar with him that I know of two preachers in India today who were formerly Brahma priests that someone gave a gospel of John to. And when they read it about Christ suffering and dying and raising again, they said, this Jesus is Prajapati. And they recognize that this book is the holy book because theirs is all corrupted with other things as well. So they put aside the, the Vedas and they begin worshiping and studying the word of God and they're both Baptist preachers now. That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And that's what's happening around the world today. Our churches that we start average 30.5 newly saved and baptized believers per church to get started. But, this, but last night while we were sleeping, there was a church going on in Vietnam in the central highlands where missionaries can't go. And the church can't hold the people anymore. The building can't hold the people. So they meet in a field outside. They bring rocks to sit on so they don't have to sit on the wet grass. And that pastor has over 2,000 rocks in it. And every one of them has somebody sitting on it on Sunday morning for church. If it rains, they bring their umbrella and they sit on the rock and hold an umbrella above them while the pastor stands out there and preach. He doesn't have a PA system. He has to preach to 2,000 people over a rice paddy. Isn't that amazing? I've seen churches in Burma that hold 7,000 people that are made out of bamboo. Why? Because they tasted and saw that the Lord was good and they wanted more. All around the world, the gospel is spreading. Everywhere you go, people are getting it. You say, what about the Islamic nations? Well, don't get too used to calling them that because they're changing. You know, in 1990, India was considered to be one and a half percent Christian. One and a half percent. Last year when I was there, they said India is now, according to the government, 11 and a half percent Christian. You say it's only a 10 percent growth in 20 years. 10 percent of a billion people is 100 million That's 100 million new converts, not counting the ones who died during those 20 years and were replaced. And by the way, that's what the government says. Any Christian leader in India will tell you that they're at least 20% Christian now. At the rate India is coming to the gospel, in my lifetime, India will cease to be a Hindu nation and will become known as a Christian nation just as South Korea has become known as well. In my lifetime, it'll happen. That's how it's happening around the world. 
Why? Because God has desire. And his desire is simply this, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Now I'll tell you something. You go to a bunch of people who have been worshiping sticks all their life, and you begin to tell them about the glory of God himself, you don't have to twist their arm to convert. I want to tell you one story, and then I'll quit. Some of you read the book, and we talk about the Akka people that I was blessed to be able to share the gospel with. Well, the Akka today are 90, 95% Christian in Thailand. No more demon spirits, no more idols, no more totem poles. There's churches in every village you go to. It's rare to find one that doesn't have it. And now they've taken the gospel to the Akka in Laos, in Burma, in China, in northern Vietnam. They're taking it to the other, to the other tribes that live there as well. The So, the Korean, the Lisu, the Lahu, the Lahu Shi, all the groups that are there hearing the gospel. It's spreading like wildfire. When you read about these conversions in China, it's not necessarily talking about the Mandarin folks. It's talking about the tribal people primarily. But the Mandarins are also converting. Among those were two young men that became evangelists named Yatu and Baldu, both little short fellows. They lived in, the nor- in northern Thailand in a town called Maasai. Their custom was they'd put rice in their bags and they'd head off through the jungle and try to find a trail. And once they find a trail, they'd follow it until they get to a village and there they'd preach the gospel. And then go on to the next one and the next one and the next one until finally two or three months later they could come back home again. One day as walking through the jungle, they found a trail, they followed it. They followed it for days. It came to a clearing of fields of rice that were being grown out in the middle of nowhere. They saw on the hill there at the top they could see the rooftops of the bamboo houses. The roofs made from thatch. And so they walked up the hill and when they got to the top of the hill, there was the entire village sitting there on the ground. Just sitting there. And an old man stood up and walked toward them and said, thank you for coming. We've been waiting for you. They looked at each other like, we've been waiting for us? What are you talking about? What do you mean you've been waiting for us? We've been walking a trail in the jungle. You couldn't see us coming. He said, I'm the shaman of this village. Shaman means he's the school crossing guard, so to speak. He stands between the human world and the spiritual world. He's their doctor, yes. He knows which herbs to, to give them to heal them or whatever the case may be. But his primary function is to protect them from the demon spirits that control their lives. So when the demons come upon them with a plague or with sickness or with or the manifestations that scare the people, they'll go to the shaman and the shaman will go into a trance. He'll become possessed by these spirits in order to communicate with them. And they'll tell him, you know, we'll let your people go. We'll leave them alone and they'll sacrifice to us. We'll make the rats leave, not eat the bananas anymore so you can have the bananas. But you got to sacrifice to us. What do you want? Well, we want uh, we want a buffalo. Sacrifice a buffalo to us or sacrifice a little girl to us or whatever the case may be. And then he'll come out of his trance and he'll tell the people about his conversation. And so they'll take a little girl in their village or they'll take a buffalo and they'll cut its throat and shed the blood. So those demons will be satisfied and leave them alone. He said, that's been my life. It's all I've ever known. I hate them. They hate us. We're afraid of them. They're more powerful than we are. They control our weather. They control everything that we have. And we're slaves to them. He says, I hate it when I have to talk to them because I can smell them. They're filthy. They stink like manure. He says, I I hate it when I see them because they're so horrible to look at. They don't love us. They hate us. 
They've never given us anything good. There's nothing we give them that ever satisfies them. They always want more and more and more. He said, but then, when I'm not involved with the spirits, I look out and I see the sun come up. Every day it comes up and warms us. Then the clouds come and bring us rain to make our crops grow. And we have food to eat. Our women give birth to babies and they bring joy to our hearts as we see them grow and stumble learning to walk and giggling. It makes us happy. And I see all these good things. And I thought to myself, these good things must come from another spirit because these evil spirits can't do anything good. And that spirit must be so great and so kind to do these things for us when we don't even know what his name is. And he must be so strong because all these evil spirits together can't keep him from giving us these good things. And he said, for years I've wanted to know who he is. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know him. He said, three nights ago I had a dream. And in my dream the creator told me that because I had been seeking for him, that in three days he would send two of his messengers to our village to tell us about him. And this morning was the third day. So this morning I woke up and I told her, no one goes to the rice paddies today. We all stay here because the creator will send us two messengers today. And here you are. Thank you for coming. Now tell us about the creator. Well, you know what happened that day. The whole village converted to Christ. Some years later, the shaman became the pastor in that village. And Yatu and Baldu took the time to write that story down and send it to me a number of summers ago so that I could be blessed by it, so you could be blessed by it. The great message of the Bible and of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering death forever. Now, Jesus did that so that every one of us can choose to be forgiven of our sins and to receive everlasting life as a gift from God. That's called the gospel message. The most important information you will ever hear in your lifetime is the gospel message. Why? Because God gives you your entire lifetime to make your choice, and your eternal destiny depends upon what you do with the gospel once you hear it. Before we say goodbye today, let me share with you this simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, you need to understand that God, your creator, knows you and loves you. God is a benevolent, gracious, loving God. You and I are his creation, and he loves us dearly. God wanted us to love him back, so he gave us something that he didn't give to any other element of his creation. When God created mankind, he gave us the opportunity to rebel. If God hadn't given us the opportunity to rebel against him, well, we couldn't truly choose to love him. He gave us the opportunity to rebel, and we did rebel. The first man and woman that God created, Adam and Eve, they chose to go their own way instead of obeying God. They sinned against their creator. And you and I have that same spirit of rebellion in us. The evidence that we had that same spirit of rebellion in us is in the fact that God has given us some very simple laws, and we break those laws every day. For example, God made us to love one another, and yet we choose to hate. God made us to deal honestly and truthfully, and yet we all cheat and lie. God made us to be obedient to authority, and yet we disobey our parents before we can even walk. Nobody has to teach us to disobey. It's in our hearts. God made us to live for his glory, and yet we live for our own gratification. These are just a few of the clear evidences that we have rebelled against our benevolent creator. 
The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you want forgiveness and everlasting life, the first step is to agree with God, to plead guilty to being a rebellious sinner, instead of saying what most people say. Well, I'm not so bad. Or, sinner? Really? I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. No, God says, sinner. The first step to receiving everlasting life from God is to plead guilty to being a sinner in God's sight. And one reason that it's vital that you do come clean and plead guilty to being a sinner is that God says our sin carries with it an eternal sentence. We've sinned against God, and our sin has earned us eternal condemnation in hell. And that's the bad news. Here's the good news. God still loves you. He loves you so much that he took upon himself the punishment that you deserve. God became a man, and he bore your condemnation and my condemnation when he died on the cross in our place. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. The Bible says, God commendeth his love toward us. That means God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, God the Son, died in your place. Because he did, the way is clear for every one of us to be forgiven and to receive everlasting life. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One at a time, God invites each of us to receive his gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. And he waits for us to say yes. Today is your day, my friend. What will you say? If you choose to say yes to God, tell God that you know you've sinned against him. Ask him to forgive you. Tell him that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins Tell him that you know that Jesus is your only hope for heaven. And tell him that you're receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now. Tell him that you want to live for him. If you made that choice today, you have God's promise of everlasting life. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, the Bible says. I would love the privilege of helping you grow in your relationship with God. Please feel free to call us or come visit one of our church services. Thank you so much for tuning into the broadcast today. God bless you and have a great week. The people of Northeast Baptist Church, thank you for spending a few minutes with us this morning. We appreciate your time, and we hope that you enjoyed the Forgiven broadcast. If you would like to share your thoughts about the program, you can call us at 203-798-7088. Northeast Baptist Church is an independent Baptist church located at 101 East Pembroke Road in Danbury. We invite you to worship with us at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Our worship service won't remind you of a funeral, and it won't remind you of a rock concert. It's just a little bit of heaven on earth. We'll see you again next Sunday morning at 7. God bless you. Have a great week. I am the son I stand here for you.
My sins have been cast in love.